Certainly a blessing, isn't it, this Lord's Day morning to have been able to gather and to assemble in the way that we are. And surely it would be fair to, to say how thankful we each should be that we can gather today to assemble on this wonderful first day of the week. As I look over the assembly today, I know many, of course, of our number, and certainly we're so thankful and happy that our health is such that we're able to gather in this way. But there are a host of visitors and guests who've come our way today, and you're our honored guest, to be sure, and we want you to know that you're always welcome here at Pippin, and we'd be happy and delighted to have you at any time that you might have opportunity to be with us. We just sang a song a moment ago, Living by Faith. And certainly to live by faith is a very special and wonderful kind of life because that kind of life is, of course, directed by a power far higher than we. It is a power, of course, manifested in the Word of God. We trust absolutely and exactly what the Bible says, even if the world would disagree, even if there are many supposed very influential others that might call it into question. We, we trust it absolutely. The lesson today will be one that will involve, as you can see, the title I've asked you to consider behind me. That particular title pointing us to a way of life that in this day at least is very prominent, very popular, and very common. It has to do with the imbibing of alcoholic beverages in a social way. We aren't talking about medicine and we aren't talking about, let's say, other kinds of prescriptive issues. We're talking about for the matters of a beverage, if you please. Our world has no problem with this. I'd like to begin the lesson by saying this. There have been occasions where assertions have been made. That old preacher, he just wants to keep me from doing what there is no problem with doing. That's the way many people feel. I'd like to assure everyone today, it isn't my business or that of the elders to prohibit you or me from doing something that God otherwise allows. For that would put us in a position of trying to legislate for God, and we aren't God. But in honesty, should we not say this, if this book has something to say about the taking in, the drinking, if you please, in a social way of alcoholic beverages, then we need to know what it says. And we need to be convinced and convicted of that which it says and try to live in harmony with it. I'd like for you and I then today to look at the Word of God from that perspective and simply ask those basic questions. And this introductory slide will make among it some observations which certainly are by no means surprising. We all know how prevalent, how common alcoholic beverages are. You walk through Walmart, you walk through the dollar store, a whole aisle is full of it. TV commercials present it in absolute abundance. And quite frankly, it's presented in such a way that if you're cool, you'll do this. In fact, you're probably strange if you don't. And sometimes our world looks upon it in such a way that it really casts a judgmental eye toward anybody that would call it into question. May I again say that our goal is simply this, Romans 4 verse 3. What saith the Scripture? When Paul made the usage in reference to that question, you may recall Paul was a learned man. He was quite frankly brilliant in many ways. 
And yet he didn't turn to human knowledge or human wisdom or in fact human speculation in an effort to answer those questions raised at the beginning of Romans chapter 4. But rather he said, what says the Word of God? And today, that's all that you and I are interested in as well. I'm sure by now that you know there are a number of verses that in fact address this topic. And as you and I close that slide, I'd like to pause long enough to say this. It isn't difficult to find religiously oriented people, even preachers in one way or another, who will strongly disagree with the conclusion we're going to reach today. You can find statements in articles and on the internet from a preacher who will absolutely say it's fine to drink socially as long as you don't go too far. I wholeheartedly disagree with him because I think the Bible does. In fact, I'm convinced that it disagrees with him. Our goal today, let's go to the next slide and make these statements. First of all, some observations about an approach to this whole topic. An approach, I think, that could be stated like this. I mentioned the reference a moment ago to Romans 4.3. Let's put that into this framework. I realize that all of us as human beings, we have a tendency to justify that which we like doing. That which we see no problem with and that which maybe family members are doing. I know we're all moved in that direction. If there's something in my life that you perhaps don't like, but I kind of do, I will go to great lengths to justify in my mind what I'm doing. And quite often, even with evidence presented against me, even with particulars presented along the line of my consideration, I will find a way to rationalize what I'm doing. I suppose we're all tempted along that line. Rather than taking at face value, for instance, what verses say or what the wisdom of elders might be, I will go what I think. But in that light, might we always remember, O oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps, to borrow the wording of Jeremiah 10, 23. It is for that reason on that slide I've invited your attention about the middle to note this. First, there's a fact or two that we ought to note. Alcohol is a drug. Even the FDA admits it. In fact, for decades it has admitted it. And so if you and I make an effort to defend the social consumption of alcohol, we could just as easily defend the social consumption of cocaine or the social consumption of marijuana, or of many other particulars that might be mentioned. My point is, it is recognized this thing is a drug. It's addictive. It has other qualities in terms of its behavior on the brain that lead it easily to be put into that category. And so as we at least discuss it in that way, let's close that slide like this. We're going to ask, what does the Word of God encourage us in fact, insist that we appreciate about this. It obviously is not a new matter. People have known for millennia how to make alcoholic beverages. They have known it. And I hope that you'll notice the way I said that. Alcoholic beverages do not make themselves. It takes skill. 
proper temperature, proper ingredients, put together in the right way for the right amount of time. They do not make themselves. It is in that regard, of course, people have known for millennia how to do it. Let's turn to the Word of God then. Let's just allow the Bible to make some statements that can help us and encourage us to have an attitude and a perspective upon this that would not only be healthy for ourselves, but also very needful for us to share with other people. The biblical conclusions take us back as far as Genesis. You and I might remember what a great man Noah was. It was he whom God commissioned to construct an ark, and it was he who, together with the other seven members of his family, they, of course, safely endured the character of that flood. But in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood ended, you'll notice that Noah found himself involved with beverage alcohol. He got drunk to the point where, of course, it had a tremendous impact upon other things or other peoples at least in his family. To begin in that kind of a way reminds us that we all have decisions to make. And there are people today who under the load of stress and under the load of pressure, they'll say, well, why can't I have a little beer? What about a wine cooler with supper to help me at least deal with these pressures of life? Society probably would say, well, that's fine. What does God say? Does He lend His approval to that? If it is our goal to do all things, both in word and in deed, according to the authority of Jesus, well, what does the Bible say? For that reason, you'll notice, we first ought to at least begin by some wording considerations. When you and I think about the words that convey the issue of beverage alcohol, well, we have to be a bit careful for the following reason. There are many original words in either Hebrew or Aramaic, or in some cases even Greek, that in fact can be translated in a way that have reference to a, a kind of drink. And I've stated it like this, there are many original words that are translated either as the word wine or as the word strong drink. It isn't just one word. There are many of them. That next observation is this, and this one is a matter that has been some issue and controversy for some people. When you look at the passages that make reference to these things, there is no question some of those passages endorse it and approve it. I've listed you a few of them. In Psalm 104 verse 15, Isaiah 65 verse 8, Zechariah 10 verse 7, in all those cases, it is lifted up as a good thing to consume this because it's a blessing from God. It's, it's hard to misunderstand that. Whatever this is, it's good. But do you know there are other passages that condemn it, such as Proverbs 20, verse 1, Proverbs 23, verses 29 and following, Isaiah 5, 11, as well as Isaiah 28, and finally Habakkuk chapter 2. Might you note with me then, in the first instance, I have a certain word, and it's proved. In the other passages, that very same word is described in a way that God condemns it. Now, might you and I notice, it's not that there's a contradiction here. 
It's the fact that the same word occurs, and the ancients, as they used that word, they didn't, in fact, by the usage of the word, you and I should appreciate that it can refer to either one. It can refer to that which is intoxicating. It can refer to that which is not intoxicating. And the context has to be the guide. The context has to be that which informs us as to which one is under consideration. Sometimes the text will inform us the behavior of people. And obviously that's a strong clue as to which one is being discussed. Out of that list of words, I have chosen to list the two primary ones. The Hebrew word, more often than not, that is translated as this word wine is yayin. Y-A-Y-I-N, at least is the way it's written in English. The corresponding Greek word is oinos. And as you and I close that slide, it becomes imperative then that we observe this. By looking at those passages in which we find approval connected to this, what do we find? As you look into them, you'll notice that this which God blesses and approves, it is squeezed out of the grape. That's fresh. It's not intoxicating. What we overtly find God so lovingly impressed with in terms of approving it then is this fresh item that is so quickly produced from, from the fruit itself. As we close that slide then, it transitions us in this way to the following. There are clearly some very, very strong warnings that are urged against what you and I would appreciate is that which is intoxicating. And I've asked you identically to note the language of Isaiah 28, 7. Here you have a description of individuals who have taken in this yayin and had they behave. They were beside themselves. They were throwing up at times. It had that kind of an impact upon them. Now the question is, would that have been the unintoxicating kind or the intoxicating kind? The one that led them to behave that way? Well, the answer speaks for itself. And the opening seven verses of that chapter have much to say as the God of heaven through the prophet rang judgment and very, very strong conclusions upon their behavior, a part of which is that. But beyond that, look at this text in Proverbs 20. The wise man Solomon put it like this. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. I've invited you to consider at least a few of the particulars connected to that verse. And you may notice there at the bottom. Wine is a mocker. Now there's that word again. Upon first reading, that doesn't tell me explicitly, by itself at least, whether it's the intoxicating kind or not. But look at the behavior that goes with it. Whatever this is, it's a mocker. The word mocker literally means abomination, or at least it carries that sense. It's what is so strongly frowned upon by God Himself. Not only that, it is to be avoided because it is a rebuker, it is a scorner. Wine is a mocker. A mocker, it doesn't quite come out and tell you the truth. It leads you to a sense of deception. It gives you an impression of one thing which in fact is not the truth. 
because it leads you, it dulls your senses. It brings you to a place wherein you see. It leads you to think what is not so. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And then the following verse, whoever is deceived by it. Did you notice? It's a deceptor. It is a rather tragic thing, isn't it, that so many today labor under the illusion of its deception. Untold gallons of it are sold every day. Untold amounts of it are then finding itself in people's homes and they imbibe it and then make judgments, sometimes very rashly, sometimes hurting their loved ones, sometimes hurting their family, sometimes losing their job, and sometimes behaving in a whole host of other ways which are not wholesome, good, and sound. Next on the slide, you may note this. The wise man said, it's raging. It's described as a brawler. It means to be boisterous. It means to stir, to be loud, to be turbulent, to murmur. All of that's included in the sense that's connected to the Old Testament usage of that word. And maybe one final thing on that slide would then be this. We appreciate then that Solomon had much to say about it. You and I, no doubt, are somewhat interested. What about the New Testament? What does the Word of God have to say specifically in this Christian age connected to this subject? May you and I have a beer or two after work, at lunch? Is it all right to have a wine cooler in the house that, of course, has fairly strong alcoholic content? Should it bother us if our 18-year-old says, Dad or Mom, I'd like to have a beer with you at supper tonight. Should it bother us? Well, first of all, in light of some of these statements so far, we notice the Old Testament has said these things. Let's look at a few New Testament matters and then draw some final statements for our lesson today. A moment ago, it was read for us as... John read that in Ephesians chapter 5. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. As Paul addressed the church at Ephesus, you may notice he was talking to Christians here. They were members of the church, so I might go ahead and say that you and I, as members of the church, can find ourselves tempted. Have you ever been in a situation where your co-workers... Maybe they say, we're going to go after work and have a few drinks. We'd love to have you come with us. And perhaps in order to fit in, in order to, in fact, remain in the good graces of our colleagues so that there's a good work environment, we have no problem maybe in thinking, well, perhaps, though I won't drink, I'm going to go. And then we get there and they set one of them in front of us. And so that we don't look out of place, I'll take a sip or two. You know, that kind of pressure, it isn't hard to imagine how it could develop. We're asking ourselves today, you'll notice what was told to the church at Ephesus. Be not drunk with wine. That's a commandment. It's not a suggestion. Now, in the sense of what is in that verse and those that are readily found in its vicinity, 
You'll notice that right before it was an assertion, redeem the time, live circumspectly, live each day in wisdom in such a way that you are following the will of the Lord. And so now in the midst of that kind of discussion, we find in verse number 18 that there is what the King James calls excess. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. There are those who look upon that and say, well, doesn't that say then I can drink as long as I don't drink too much? That's not what it means. That word excess comes from an original word that means riot. It doesn't have anything to do with the amount. It has to do with a corresponding behavior, the implications and the consequences of this. And so on that particular statement, I have asked you to appeal with me to a Greek lexicographer, somebody who knows the Greek language much better than I do and probably much better than any of us here today. According to Young's Concordance, this word that's there translated means to intoxicate, to make drunk, to begin to be softened. It is descriptive of the process, not, if, if you please, of a final state. So what is it then here that is under description? To begin to be softened. Hmm. That's very telling, isn't it? So if our friend Young, the lexicographer, has described it that way, might you and I keep in mind, we need not to take any of this. Social drinking is not okay. Now that verse, perhaps you'd say, well, that isn't convincing enough to me. Well, may I say that there are several additional verses, and we're going to look at one of them in some detail in just a moment, but as we at least move in that direction, in Romans 13, 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, and finally Galatians 5, 21, we have the following very strong statement, that there is, of course, a number of things that will condemn your soul or mine to hell. And we know what some of these are. Adultery will do it. Fornication will do it. Strife, many other things. But did you notice? Drunkenness is in the list. Now you might ask, well, how do I indicate then drunkenness? The text doesn't say, if you drink four drinks, that's fine, but five is too many. Or if you drink two drinks, that's fine, but three is too many. All it says is drunkenness. How do you determine then what is drunkenness? The lexicographer has told us that the word that has appeared in that Ephesians passage has relation, you see, to this beginning, the process of it, the entirety of it. And therefore, might you and I notice we've already encountered some rather strong wording and language in which God is advising us. Just as He did in the first century, so He does still today reminding us that this is not wise behavior. It puts us in a position, you see, of doing that which He told the Ephesians not to do. But as you and I close that slide, I would offer even more considerations. The next one taking us to 1 Thessalonians. I've invited you to consider with me several verses in the 1 Thessalonian letter. These verses all make use of a word. S-O-B-E-R is the injunction. The God of heaven says, be sober. That's a commandment. 
Would you again note with me, it is not a suggestion. It is not a matter that's left as an optional thing for you and for me. If we are to please God, we must be sober. Now the question becomes, what does the word mean? And I've asked you to notice its occurrence in all those verses. Let me at least mention one of them in passing, and then let's give it more attention. That First Peter 5, 8 one. Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now there, soberness is connected with vigilance. That is to say, watchfulness in such a way that the devil is there and he is exerting effort to capture our attention in such a way to lead us into temptation to sin. Don't you suppose that one of the tactics that he would so readily be willing to use is, if I can dull his judgment, if I can dull his senses, then he will do this. He'll talk like he ought not. He'll think like he ought not. And he'll even behave like a he ought not. And he'll commit sin. I would think it'd be an obvious tactic he would use. And yet the Word of God encourages us to be sober. Notice the meaning of this word sober. The actual Greek word carries the following sense. It means the opposite of being intoxicated. That is to say, if I involve myself in a, in a particular activity that leads to intoxication in any form, then I have moved in the direction opposite what the word sober asks me to, and therefore I've erred. In closing that slide, we've at least looked at another consideration touching that subject. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we in essence come to a somewhat of a conclusion, or at least a summary of what we've learned so far. I'd like to read much of this one along with you, so if you would turn that one to that particular chapter and listen as I read a few of the verses. This is the fourth chapter of 1 Peter. Now, as you keep in mind, Peter, of course, was writing to these individuals that were scattered abroad they found themselves in some very challenging conditions. And yet, beginning in verse number 1 of chapter 4, this is how the text reads, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Peter begins by saying, Jesus suffered for us, and he says, Don't you be alarmed if you are called upon to endure some difficulty or hardship in your devotion to Christ. Verse 2, "...that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God." You and I don't live following the lusts of men. At the time we made our confession, we confessed, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we directed the fullness of our spirit, ourself, if you please, to follow Jesus as our King and Master. Therefore, the lusts of, the, of men, the lusts of the flesh, are not what we pursue. Verse 3, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. 
So Peter's quick to say, there was a time before we came to know the Master when we lived like the Gentiles. He talked about people before they were Christians, and notice they followed abominable idolatries. They followed lasciviousness. They pursued lusts, those lusts of men that we mentioned earlier. Well, that's not difficult for us to understand, is it? In some way, maybe that characterizes you and I. Did you or I live in, in a very worldly way before we became a Christian? Did we follow the pursuits of the flesh and the pursuits of men? And then the time came in life we woke up. Maybe some dear person shared the gospel with us, and we began to take it seriously, and we obeyed it. And we made a change in life that we wouldn't follow those things anymore. It is in that connection I would ask you to notice three other elements in his list. Excess of wine, revelings, and banquetings. What are those three things? Especially the last two are probably words we don't use very much in English. Do you and I often make reference to revelings and banquetings? I suspect not. Thus it becomes important that we at least appreciate what is it that's included in the identification of these things. And I've asked you to notice, let's take the first one, excess of wine. That one's the easy one. There it literally means when you've drunk a whole lot. That's not hard to understand. So we find here a condemnation of that. Those who imbibe a great deal of intoxicating beverage... But the interesting thing is, that's not the only one listed. What are the other two? I've asked you to note these definitions. First, the word banquetings comes from an original word that literally means drinking or drinking party. Did you notice? There's nothing said about the amount. There's nothing said about the volume, if you please. It is, in fact, this drinking. It apparently relates to this kind of thing which was a part of the life that they needed to give up, a life they had given up. We put that in connection to the third one, revelings, referring to feasts or drinking parties that typically went late into the night with carousing. Now, obviously, there could be many other behaviors involving that one, perhaps sexual in character, that would also not be good. But at the very least, doesn't it seem as if the Holy Spirit's reminding us it's not only the excess of wine. Even in moderate amount, this banquetings is a condemned thing because he says in verse 4, "...wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you." It's true. If one had been accustomed to living like that, then you stop. Your friends are probably going to insult you, demean you, perhaps even call into question, well, why are you now doing that? Come and enjoy these things with us. But you see, as Christians, we serve a higher power, and we serve a different master, and it's our goal to go to a different place. As you and I close that slide, may I say that we would never wish to bubble over with wine. That's condemned, but also... In these other words, it seems even much more modern amounts would also not be pleasing. Whether it be Peter's writing in 1 Peter 4, Paul's writing in the other passages we've noted earlier, 
the New Testament seems to be very coherent and very complete in saying this. And you may already wonder, there's a major passage that I have not discussed. Didn't Jesus turn water to wine in John chapter 2? Does that provide enough evidence that this is fine? May I ask a question? Do you know that the wine he made was intoxicating? Verses 9 and 10 indicate it was not. Therefore, I'd say to you that passage offers no justification as a reason, if you please, for those who would wish to rationalize it, especially given that these other passages have already thus given such a strong note against it. Let's close our lesson like this. Abstain from all appearance of evil. What is it that are the typical companions of beverage alcohol? Can you say that it has good company? Can you say that that which corresponds to it is uplifting and sound and wholesome and good? Will it make you a better father? Will it make you a better mother? Will it make you a better husband or a better wife? How about a better employee or a better employer? You can't say that it makes you better in any way. And it does not remove the problems of life. Those who think that it's a release for a little while, the problems are still there when you're done. They haven't gone away. In fact, they're often intensified because now you've wasted your money on something that hasn't helped you. And it has only hurt your brain in the process. I hope you and I have been encouraged then to to live wisely, to live circumspectly, to live in a way that we understand that Jesus does have some things to say through His gospel that touches even a subject like this one. On that conclusion slide then, you'll notice that wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived by it is not wise. May we never be deceived by it. May we realize it for what it is. And may we live strongly recognizing what the Bible has to say about it so that we can be a good influence to all those whom we may. This very day, maybe as you've analyzed your life, and it may not be anything to do with the subject we've discussed, but there's something that's troubled your conscience of late, and you know that Jesus isn't pleased with your choices. But you know at one time you enjoyed communion with Him and you loved every minute of it. But as if today you're having trouble sleeping at night, your spirit is a bit bothered because you know that all is not well with your soul. You know, you don't have to continue in that consideration. Jesus issued an invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11, 28-30. Today, the invitation is about to be extended, and if we could be of assistance to you, we'd like you to know that we'd love to help you. If we could pray with you, if your sins are things known publicly, we'd be honored, in fact, to take note of your repentance and confession, and we'll pray to God, and He'll forgive you. But if you've never become a Christian, you know that Jesus died for you. He shed blood at Calvary. He gave His life that you might live, but He does leave the decision to you. You need to obey the gospel if that's the condition in your life. Won't you believe in Him fully and absolutely? Develop faith in Him.
And as you believe in Him, repent of your sins. Confess the greatness of His name as the Messiah and be immersed in water for the remission of your sins. We'd be delighted to assist you in that way today. If we could help you in either of these ways, we extend the invitation and do so at once while together we stand and sing the chosen hymn.